1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be interviewing Dr. Adam Day about his book that addresses the question of why United Nations state building has so consistently failed to meet its objectives. In his book titled States of Disorder, Ecosystems of Governance, Complexity Theory Applied to UN State Building in the DRC and South Sudan, he explains that... An application of complexity theory, as the title suggests, might actually help us make sense of this problem of UN state building, both in the specific cases of South Sudan and the DRC, and in broader contexts where the UN has been tasked with implementing huge stabilization and state building missions. So welcome to the podcast, Adam Day.
0: Thanks, Miranda. It's really nice to meet you.
1: Could you please start us off by introducing yourself, your background a bit, and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: Yeah, sure. My my name's Adam Day. I'm the Director of Programs at UN University's Center for Policy Research, where I've been for about the last five years. But my background really is mostly peacekeeping and conflict resolution. I spent about a decade working in different conflict zones, including Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Sudan, but also in the Middle East and North Africa, in and out of New York uh, headquarters. And really, this book came out of that experience and a question that kept arising in my work in these so-called failed or or fragile states like, like Congo and South Sudan, And that question, I mean, and you kind of summarized it, but that question really is why, after so many decades of international support and billions of dollars of investment, why have these countries not managed to build the kind of viable state institutions that's really envisioned by the international community? And so, for example, when I was working in Eastern Congo, The U.N. had spent more than 20 years trying to extend state authority into the countryside, trying to fight back armed groups and replace them with police stations and roads and courthouses. But what I found was really in many respects and in most respects that hadn't worked. So if you look at, at Eastern Congo in 2006, there were maybe a dozen armed groups operating there. Ten years later in 2016, when I was the senior political advisor to the mission there, that number had grown to more than 75 and we're approaching 100 armed groups today. And at the same time, the state isn't really much better at delivering basic protections and services to its people. So that's really the starting, the starting point for this book. Uh, the question, why isn't state building as we as we all understand it? working. And over the 10 years that I worked in those places, I had the beginning of an idea. Um, and, in, and really the beginning of that idea is that instead of treating conflict zones as broken machines that need fixing or puzzles, missing pieces, or what Hillary Clinton and hundreds of other people have called ungoverned spaces, I thought it would be more useful and accurate to think of these societies in, in complex ecosystems terms. And specifically, my, my the book starts with this idea that governance, that this delivery of security and basic goods is not something that's just done by a state but it's actually a result of competition and collaboration across a pretty wide range of actors, including armed groups and traditional leaders, businesses, and ordinary citizens, and that these relationships form a system and often a very resilient one that changes in nonlinear ways. So you can't just remove an armed group and replace it with a police station. You have to understand how the system works as a whole. That's the mindset. That's really the starting point for for this project.
1: So, Introduce us then in a little bit more detail to complexity theory, right, which is obviously in the title of the book. And having read it, I think does actually offer a really interesting lens into examining this problem. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what it is?
0: Yeah, and, and maybe hopefully demystify it a bit, because um, often people kind of glaze over when they hear the term complexity theory. But complexity theory has really been around for a long time, since the ancient Greeks, at least. Um, and most of us are at least somewhat familiar with with some of the ideas from and the terms from complexity theory, from economics, which tends to treat financial markets somewhat as a complex system. So many of us who may have come across Malcolm Gladwell and ideas of tipping points and snowballs and things like that have, have a certain amount of um, passing knowledge of complex systems. But the basic idea is that there's a difference between something that is complicated and something that is complex. A complicated system is something like a car or a basic computer. So a car engine can have a lot of parts and pieces, but it fundamentally deals with inputs and outputs. What you put into a car, you get a distinct and predictable thing out of it. But that's different from a complex system like a beehive or an immune system. Complex systems have many, many individual parts that interact with each other or or actors that interact with each other in nonlinear ways. It's not an input output. Uh, system. So a beehive can behave with a collective intelligence that's greater and different than the sum of all the bees' individual intelligence. An immune system can respond to a disease in a way that is different than the sum of its individual cells. And part of my argument, and I'm certainly not the first person to make this, is that societies can operate as complex systems, meaning that all of the relations amongst people and institutions can develop a set of patterns and and gravitational pulls that evolve over time. They develop their own rules, underlying rules, um, and that they evolve in nonlinear ways. Um, In in complex systems uh, terminology, we call that emergent behavior. And so societies look more like other complex systems than complicated input-output ones. And and one of of the starting points for me, or, or maybe a little bit of an example, one of the most famous books about Afghanistan was called Fixing Failed States by Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart. And that book treated Afghanistan to a certain extent like a car engine, suggesting that certain parts of it were broken, need to be fixed, need to be removed and and replaced. And it's exactly the same mindset I heard when I was in Eastern Congo, where military commanders would say things like, we need to clear out the armed groups, that the kind of broken pieces, and replace them with police stations and courthouses. Um, And then that broken, ungoverned territory will start to function my starting point really is that there is no ungoverned or broken space in the world where there are people there is governance even if it's not the type of governance that western liberals like to think of and you can't just bomb an armed group out of an area and replace them because those militias are part of a complex system in eastern congo for example armed groups aren't just predatory So they are predatory. They aren't just predatory. They also provide protection. They deliver charcoal. They help market gold and coltan on the international market. In complex theory terms, they are a crucial node in the system. And if you bomb them, and and I'm using that word... Strictly, when I was in Congo, that's exactly what the UN was doing. It won't, quote unquote, fix the system. It will create a ripple effect. Um, And I can give plenty more examples of what that ripple effect is like. But I think the, the starting point for the application of complexity theory is if you map a complex system and you understand what its underlying rules are, and then you understand how change happens over time, um, that's what complexity theory offers to state building. You start understanding how complex social systems change and evolve in nonlinear ways, whereas state building tends to operate in a fairly linear way, which is you you clear the, the bad elements out, you put good elements in, and you end up with better a kind of stability over time. And so for me, complex systems theory offers a real empirically based theory of change.
1: Thank you for, as you said, demystifying complexity theory. Um, and the other building block right then of your book is the case studies, the fact that you map these this out in South Sudan and the DRC specifically. But we've already mentioned that you could have done this for a number of other cases. And in fact, the conclusions you come to in the book are applicable more broadly. So how and why did you choose to focus on South Sudan and the DRC as your case studies?
0: Yeah, I think South Sudan and DRC offer two very different systems, very different um, approaches to governance, but both end up with the same outcome to a certain extent, which is failure of state building. So, South Sudan in 2011 was the world's newest state. I was there on Independence Day, um, July 9, 2011. It was the biggest UN state building mission ever. There was a huge amount of goodwill. The World Bank talked about starting a country from scratch. Um, and there was this enormous effort to extend the state from the capital in Juba to the various peripheries. Um, Congo for, uh, in contrast was one of the longest state building efforts that the UN at least has supported starting really I mean, well before 2002, but 2002 was the kind of point at which there was an the end of a, a peace agreement. Um, and, and then over the next two decades, there was a similar attempt to extend state authority from, from the capital into the, the various, um, peripheries. Um, and both systems, even though they're very different, we can get into the, the, idiosyncrasies of the system, but both showed similar signs of the failure to extend state authority. Both had a tendency to drop back into predatory and violent forms of of governance. Both showed a very strong resilience against the kind of top-down state-building approach of the U.N., um, I would argue, equally, a, a pr- fairly strong resilience to the highly localized approaches to state building as well. And so what I thought was by exploring these two very different systems, I could identify some common ways that they tended to respond and resist the type of international interventions that um, that we see over the last many years. Um, it helped that I had lived and worked in both of them for some time, so I had a bit of a better sense of how many of the people there saw those systems. But what I hoped to do was by continuing contrasting them also offer uh, comparisons that could go to other systems. And, and so the book also starts with, um, I mean, I finished the book just as Afghanistan was being taken over by the Taliban again. I think it's a very clear application of that complexity theory approach to Afghanistan. I had worked on the mission in, in Libya and I, throughout the book, I make reference to Libya, but I also think that you can use complexity theory to explain how countries like Liberia may have um, a Arrived at a slightly better outcome. I, I don't really like the term failure and success and I start with failure as an idea to try and complicate it I hope by the end of the book we have a, a more gray Understanding of, of how systems evolve and not a binary one where you have success and failure um, But that's really this the starting point for choosing those two those two countries
1: Thank you for explaining that um, And I do want to get into some of those idiosyncrasies of the cases now that we've sort of laid out the problem you're looking at, the theory, um, and why these case studies are useful. Um, I want to get into some of the details of first South Sudan and then the DRC and then see what you find with the comparison. Um, So turning to South Sudan, um, you talk about in the book the importance of kinship ties and ethnicity as not just important in and of themselves, but as dominant forms of access to governance and resources in South Sudan. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how those things become the dominant form of access and what the implications mm-hmm. of that are?
0: Yeah, and I think one of the ideas I put forward in, in the book is is the, the idea of a palimpsest, so a piece of writing that is written over and over again and I think in both settings, but you were talking about South Sudan, so I'll start with there, there was a, a pre-colonial form of governance that was largely organized around um, ethnicity and community leadership. Um, and that was disrupted by the colonial period, by the mandate period, with uh, first the uh, Turkish and, or Ottoman and then um, and the British mandate period. But what happened was they, instead of fully disrupting the traditional um Governance arrangements, the colonial period instrumentalized it. So you could um, you could see, for example, traditional leaders in in South Sudan were raising taxes for the colonial powers. They were mediating that relationship between urban and countryside areas. And over time, they, the traditional leadership became a kind of liminal aspect of governance, where um, resources would flow through them, where people in the countryside could only access. Um, some of the more important resources of the state through traditional leadership, where things like justice and and basic rule of law were often actually dictated by the traditional leadership on behalf of the state. So, I mean, other, other writers have talked about that as a kind of hybrid form of governance. For me, it was more that the traditional leaders became part of a set of relationships over time. And even when the the Civil War happened, what ended up happening was the various factions of the army grew up around these communities, protected these communities. And so then even as you get into the post-war period in in South Sudan, post 2005, um, many of the uh, SPLA, the, the Southern People's Liberation Army, factions were still organized by ethnic group, were still meant to protect and deliver for those groups. Um, and the traditional leadership was still playing that role of kind of mediating between the the state and, and the people. And even as you get into South Sudan as a state, following um, July 2011, that relationship stayed in place. So what you ended up seeing was, whereas the UN would come in and say, okay, we need to build, you know, build up the police force and, and reduce the extent to which the army needs to provide security, those resources that were meant to be going to the police force in various communities would end up being distorted and going back into the SPLA, back into those, those that relationship of traditional leader. SPLA and communities. And so what ended up happening was you had essentially two pictures of the South Sudanese state. You had the picture that was formally presented to the international community, which was a largely liberal Western state. There was even actually there were actually two budgets. Um, but there will be one which was, okay, we are going to do security sector reform. We're going to integrate people. Um, we're going to, we're going to create a viable police force. We're going to distribute resources to the periphery to pay for that and build courthouses and do better education system in the periphery. And then you had the shadow, um, reality, which was that resources and political energy and, and, um, and really the, the overall kind of emphasis of the system was going into this other network mediated through the traditional leaders in the SPLA. And so what ended up happening between 2011, when when South Sudan became a, an independent country in 2013, when it um, fell back into civil war, was essentially a consolidation of power in the same um, networks as had existed during the civil war. And what triggered the, um, the actual civil war, to a certain extent, was when uh, the decision to cut off oil production to punish the North essentially dried up that network of, um, of resources and caused uh, really an ethnic fracture in, in the country around that. So I think by mapping it from really a pre-colonial all the way up through independence period, you can see the South Sudanese system returning to ethnicity, returning to those traditional leaders as a, um, a kind of com- a strong gravitational pull for resources and political energy. And really by, f- by not taking into account the importance of that to a certain extent, I mean, I, I interviewed um, several South Sudanese, I mean, hundreds of South Sudanese who um, really said that the, the way that the UN state building um, funneled resources into one side and not the other. There was a so-called Dinka dominated government and so by supporting state institutions, resources went into one side but not the other various sides that that um, uh, were present in South Sudan. So that's kind of part of the description of how ethnicity plays a role in, in the South Sudanese system. It's different by ethnic group by ethnic group, but what I tried to do was show some common patterns and types of relationship that really sustained themselves from the colonial period to present and which operated as a sort of resistance node to some of the state building approaches of the UN and, and its partners at the time.
1: I think it's helpful to think about kind of mapping and patterns to make sense of um, something that could otherwise seem very complicated, especially to people who uh, many of our listeners, I'm guessing, are not people who have um, worked for the UN in South Sudan for years like you have. Um, But one other thing that I was interested to see you map and sort of trace uh, that seemed to have kind of fewer colonial roots, seemed to be more um, kind of increased as it went on, uh, was the militarization of governance, both through the SPLA that we've already spoken about, but also in some cases against the SPLA. So mm. can you maybe, you know, now that we have this map around ethnicity um, to sort of understand some of the nodes around governance, can you add this layer of sort of militarization of governance for us?
0: Yeah, and and, and certainly Matthew LaRiche and Clémence Pinot have written some pretty authoritative authoritative stuff on this. Um, I think maybe the easiest way to think of it is over a 20 year period of South Sudan's uh, battle against the North, um, there was a, even though there were many, many factions within South Sudan, what unified them was the Southern People's Liberation Movement and army, which created a consolidated uh, resistance against the North. Um, And over time, the SPLA, the army um, became a completely hegemonic force in in South Sudan. And it took over, for example, taxation, took over many governance functions at the community level. Um, And there was a reciprocal exchange. So communities would support and feed the soldiers. Feeding is an incredibly important word, by the way, in South Sudan. It would feed the soldiers and in return be protected by them. And so that reciprocal kind of symbiosis continued on past when South Sudan became a a country um, where the SPLA maintained that reciprocal relationship and didn't really professionalize as one would imagine in the West, but continued to protect its communities in in return for feeding. But I think another aspect of this militarization was um, there was a, really a dominant way of communicating within this system. And it was by armed rebellion. So if, for example, a community um, in, in one of the peripheries of South Sudan was not receiving what it thought was a fair allocation of the resources through the SPLA, it would communicate that by defecting from the SPLA. And during the Civil War, that defection looked like defection to Khartoum or, or fighting against other elements of the SPLA. Um, During the post-independence period, that defection looked just more like uh, a civil war because you had your own country. Um, But that was the form of communication within the South Sudanese system was violence. And so this militarization of governance was in part... Um, the fact that the SPLA had this hegemonic role in governance, but also that the form of communication, political communication was a combination of um, having clout in the system and being willing to use uh, violence in the periphery. So, um, what this also meant was there was very little effort or resources put into other forms of governance because they wouldn't be effective politically in gaining resources from the center. If you needed to get more money into Bohr or Kadugli or Bentube or Wow, it was much better to be a military threat that could that could communicate in that way than to build up a viable set of other governance mechanisms. So I think that is at the kind of basic level, what I mean by the militarization and factionalization of governments. And then the knock-on effect is certainly that when the UN came in and tried to demilitarize much of this, um, the system was, was very much positioned against that process and all of the efforts at security sector reform and DDR and things like that really came up against this built-in resistance in the system.
1: And so then... Let's add the UN into that, right? The UN mission comes in, and you've already laid out now sort of two um, overlapping histories and maps of ways in which the system in South Sudan was functioning. Um, And then the UN comes and says, okay, we're going to help with state building, and it's a blank slate, and this is what we're going to do. And essentially, as you demonstrate, does not take very much of this map into account, Um, And you say in the book that this creates, quote, enormous gaps between rhetoric and reality. Could you maybe illustrate a few ways that this ended up happening between the UN and South Sudan?
0: Hmm. Well, I think for me, just a a starting point is that I was part of this. I was in South Sudan in 2010 and wrote, co-authored with uh, another UN official, the conflict assessment that was used as the basis for planning the mission in South Sudan. So I certainly consider myself complicit in, in furthering some of that gap between rhetoric and reality. But I think It's almost when when you have a doctor who's an expert in cancer, they always find cancer everywhere. When you've got a UN that has been built around this idea of building state capacity um, and rule of law institutions, they're gonna see the problem as an absence of state institutions and rule of law. So part of it has to do with the lens. But I think maybe just a few examples of of what that conflict assessment had in it will will help show what the problem is. So we toured around South Sudan for, for quite a while, We we relied on a lot of expert advice. And one of the key um, findings we had was that the various forms of violence in the periphery, so cattle rustling resulting in in cycles of violence or deeply entrenched forms of of other forms of violence, um, were the result of a lack of legitimate, effective state institutions. And that's true in, in the margins of... And by margins, I just mean kind of geographic margins outside of Juba and outside of uh, major metropolis areas. there are very few state institutions sometimes none um, there are very few roads in south sudan and so you often kind of drop in in a helicopter and you you see people that that haven't been participating in in state institutions or seeing any benefit from them for their entire lives so that that is a reality is that there are very few state institutions but i think our willingness to tie that Um, lack of state institutions to the different forms of violence that we saw was um, not sufficiently taking into account the governance uh, capacities that already existed there. Um, And so one uh, one of the assumptions we had as a UN, I'm using the word we intentionally here, was that if we could build roads out from these cities into these rural areas and construct police stations and construct courthouses, and essentially build something that looked a little bit more like Denmark and South Sudan, um, those forms of violence would be disrupted and essentially eradicated. And if we could turn the SPLA from a kind of fractured rebel army into a professional one that complemented a police force, there would be kind of a linear trajectory that would build slowly towards a a more stable state. And I think the assumption there was that in all of these so-called peripheries of South Sudan, they were in need of, of state governance. Um, what I think the gap between rhetoric and reality was, first of all, the state in South Sudan was seen by a significant minority of the, I mean, maybe even majority of the South Sudanese as a predatory and highly ethnically driven group of rebels not as a legitimate state institution so when you start pushing that version of the state into other areas in south sudan it's seen as a threat and their response was not always um, a positive one in fact most of the time it, it wasn't and then when you had the civil war starting Um, You could see that play out where different ethnic groups and different communities would rise up against the state. Um, And it's because they had never really seen the state as something that was providing the basic governance for them. And this is one of the interesting things when you start doing population surveys and you ask individuals or communities, where do you turn when when you feel unsafe? Very, very few of the people of South Sudan would say, I turn to the police. And it's even worse in in Congo, which we'll turn to in a bit. So I think that was one of the key differences, is there was an assumption that we could have a linear trajectory for South Sudan that would gradually transform it into something that looked more like a Weberian monopoly of security by a viable state and delivery of basic services by a viable state. I think another big gap between rhetoric and reality was I think we underestimated the extent to which South Sudan had become completely dependent on international support um, and the extent to which the SPLA and the dominant forces within it were able to instrumentalize that. I mean, Operation Lifeline Sudan during the Civil War was one of the biggest humanitarian operations in the world ever. And the SPLA and, and these kind of nodes of relationships through uh, customary leaders and, and the SPLA became very adept at Um, feeding off of those dependencies and instrumentalizing them. And so when we were over time trying to make South Sudan less dependent on humanitarian aid and build its own capacities, not only were there strong pushes and patterns and um, working against that feedback loops that essentially every time you built something, it would get stripped away because the incentives for uh, having a sustainable a set of um, institutions were actually not very high when you knew you could get major Western donors to feed money and in instead. But I think there were also really strong path dependencies within the humanitarian community. And I remember interviewing dozens of people who, when I said kind of, what what's your vision for ending South Sudan's reliance on the type of Operation Lifeline levels of support, couldn't really articulate anything. And part of, part of my motivation for for this um, this entire project was an insight by S- Susan Woodward, who said that state building is often much more about building Western capacities to continue to deliver state building and much less about actually delivering uh, viable governance structures in the field. and, and that thats an extraordinarily cynical point of view, which I, I shared to a large extent. but looking at some of those dependent those path dependencies um, and and very unlikely, Uh, ability to move in that linear trajectory, I think, is something that I try to track in both case studies and and more generally in state building.
1: And I think what we've just discussed with South Sudan has kind of very clearly showed how that works, right? By mapping out what is there and then going, wait a second, this is what's being imposed. It's much easier to see the gaps. Um, And so now I want to turn over to your other case study, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to kind of do the same sort of thing, examine what was there and then how it does and doesn't work in the UN model. Um, So to sort of first establish the sort of mapping, you talk about um, the existence of uh, Mobutu's patronage system and then how that is changed, but also in some ways not changed by the two Congolese civil wars um, that then the UN system, the UN state building comes in kind of after that to a degree. So can you sort of map out for us what is this patronage governance system and how is it then changed by two civil wars?
0: Yeah, and maybe one way to think about it is that to a certain extent, it's almost the opposite of South Sudan in many respects. So um, Mobutu, um, essentially, I mean, he, this is a, almost a comical aspect of it, but his his mantra was de which vous which is fend for yourself. And instead of, if if the SPLA was kind of everywhere in South Sudan's periphery, Mobutu's security and governance system was nowhere. He left it largely on its own in the peripheries. And the idea was, as long as the peripheries paid in through a protection network, they wouldn't suffer. Um, One of the concepts that I think is very interesting is this idea of a parapluie or an umbrella. And I'll give you an example in the police force. So if a traditional police force has a a budget in the center and with that budget the ministry of interior will pay down the line um, until you get to your local police officer and then the police officer has a salary and secures a community and that reciprocal exchange the social contract exchange means that you have a legitimate police force mobutu's system was the opposite what he would do is from the top down, there would be a series of protections. The person would protect the person below them in exchange for resources. So when you get down to the community level, the police were expected to raise money from the community to pay to protect their position in the communities. That is a, a that is a patronage network that is quite different than, than the SPLMs. But what it meant was... Um, Instead of building kind of viable, legitimate um, institutions under Mobutu, it was really a, a sponge that sucked resources um, in into the center. Um, and so, what happens during the civil wars um, is, is in very simplified terms, um, the the absence of any real state institutions or, or viable military in the in the very lucrative peripheries of Eastern Congo meant that all of the natural resources in the coltan and the diamonds and the gold and the timber, um, were able to be controlled by a variety of other armed actors who then created networks to market it internationally. Steven Jackson has written some good work on this as, um, as well, but what it did was that, 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 um, that space for armed activity meant that armed groups in Eastern Congo could enter into a networked relationship with local businesses, with local traditional leaders, with individual citizens, with elements of the military, a kind of node in a network, as I describe it, that allowed them to provide basic governance and protections. So if you look today, I mean this, and I'm kind of jumping forward and backward a bit to show that these patterns stay in place, the FDLR, the, the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, one of the bigger armed groups in Eastern Congo, and one which is considered a, a priority for neutralization, as they say, is delivering charcoal to um, civilians in Goma. Um, the Allied Democratic Forces, known as one of the most vicious um, armed groups in, in Beni Lubero, Eastern Congo area, also is crucial for the marketing of illicit or the illicit marketing of natural resources through Uganda and outwards, which provides really important resources into certain communities in in eastern Congo. The ADF also protects some communities and participates in some of the intercommunal fighting. And so, I think the big picture is that that Mobutu's system allowed for armed elements to really participate much more directly in the governance arrangements of Eastern Congo. Now, I don't wanna make that sound like a pleasant thing. They're often very vicious. They're often uh, extremely predatory um, and, and certainly not the, the, the type of existence that we would um, hope for as an as international community trying to reduce violence, but they are effective and necessary. And I think the key starting point for me in Eastern Congo is, you cannot just clear out armed elements and fix a broken system. Um, One of the most poignant phrases that I heard over and over again when I was a senior political advisor in Monusco was the phrase that actually drawn from uh, counterinsurgency doctrine, which is shape, clear, hold, build. The idea that you can shape a conflict arena, clear it of armed elements, hold it against those armed elements, and then build state capacities is exactly what they tried to do in Afghanistan, and largely what they were trying to do in, in Eastern Congo. And I think for me, and we can get into more detail on that, but that idea That the Congolese civil wars created the the space for this type of militarized network where armed groups were fundamental to governance, not the only fundamental aspect, business entities as well and others, and international actors. But that's really the starting point for me to to do a critique of the UN's approach to stabilization and state building in in eastern Congo.
1: So it will probably come to no surprise to listeners then that one of the um, critiques you have of the UN mission is quote, that it unwittingly bolsters some of the Congo's tendencies towards authoritarianism, predatory state practices, and violent forms of governance. You've described kind of how we get to a point where that is the tendency in the DRC. How do UN missions contribute to that?
0: Yeah, I think there are maybe three. And there's some very good work by Sarah von Billerbeck and Oisin Tansy, um on peacebuilding and authoritarianism that's worth going into a bit more. I think yeah. One of them is if you don't map a system and you, put, and you have a state-centric approach to the system, you're gonna have a certain number of blind spots as to how the system is going to respond. So for example, um, during the two elections that Kabila won um, in 2003, 2006, 2007, um, there was a huge amount of resources put into um, executive elections. Um, at the same time, a huge amount of resources put into building state capacities, supporting the Congolese army, and essentially doing stabilization and security sector reform. And those kind of typical state centric approaches to conflict. One of the problems there is that the, the actual network that was dealing with those resources, wasn't putting them to the same use that the UN thought they were in a similar way, South Sudan, when I talk about the shadow government, um, So for example, much of the support to the FARDC, the National Army, ended up participating in disputes over um, natural resources and control of certain areas in Eastern Congo. So I think in very simple terms, we put resources into a machine without knowing where they're gonna go, into a system, not a machine, without knowing where they're gonna go. And the, the focus on kind of holding executive elections in a system that has a very strong tendency to authoritarianism means that often those resources and political energy end up centralizing into uh, authoritarian type states. And that's similar with the political signaling, by the way. One of the interesting things that I track during in the book is when the UN comes in and uses force to try to um, stabilize a country, that force is done alongside the central government. For example, when there were operations against the Allied Democratic Forces when I was there in, in Congo, it was done jointly with the National Army. Now, that's sending a very strong signal to those communities that the National Army is, is on the side of the UN and that there are good guys and bad guys in the UN uh, is on the side of what they think of as the good guys. When you go and interview communities in those areas, that picture is not the same they don't see necessarily such a clear good and bad guy. In fact, they may see some of the armed groups as absolutely critical to their own protection. So one of the things that I tracked actually was you, there were military operations either by the government or by the UN with the government against a certain armed group. And in the aftermath of those operations, you'd see spikes in kidnappings. You'd see the armed group, Uh, You'd see reprisal attacks across communities. You'd see a real ripple effect in the system that wasn't always what the UN had in mind. If the UN's goal for neutralization operations was to reduce the capacity of the armed group and lead to better protection of civilians, a spike in kidnapping and reprisal attacks is certainly an unintended consequence. And, And I think that's in part because these armed groups were often providing really important protections and basics. And, and, and we're participating in a, in a really crucial um, set of governance roles that was underestimated by the UN. Um, and so I think understanding a bit better the various faces of these groups would have allowed us to go in and say, okay, well, if we're going to do an operation against the armed group, what are the other things that we need to do alongside that operation to address those ripple effects? And there was a really wonderful, um, police commissioner at the time, who helped to set up, I think, an innovation in the system, and I I flag it briefly in the book because it didn't end up lasting um, beyond his tenure, um, called the Criminal Networks Task Force, which actually started with that point of understanding that a group like the FDLR um, is not just an armed group, but that it works with corrupt elements of the national army to deliver charcoal into goma for example so one of the kind of innovations in monusco was they designed an intervention that would go after the fdlr with military forces to disrupt an illicit um, network would also go after corrupt congolese military actors who were setting up checkpoints on behalf of of the armed group and, and facilitating their, their illicit, um, transi- uh, transfer of, of charcoal and other, other, uh, goods, and then would also try and identify funds to replace the charcoal that wouldn't be delivered by the FDLR. For me, that's a model of a much more sophisticated understanding of the, of the relationship that an armed group has to a governance system in a place like GOMA. Unfortunately, um, that, that particular initiative kind of, uh, wasn't sustained over time but it gave me a sense that's what a um a more systemic approach to stabilization might look like
1: thank you for um kind of explaining what could have been as well as where some of the problems um are i think that's really helpful and kind of leads nicely to um the next question i have for you uh this is a very difficult question i acknowledge that however you do talk about it in the book and you've already mentioned it in the interview so i feel okay asking you. Um, This book does obviously focus heavily on two case studies, but what are the implications of your work and this analysis for UN state building more generally?
0: Yeah. And I think when you're doing an academic project, I remember um, one of, one of the kind of reviewers of my book, said, you know, you, you don't actually need to have policy implications in an academic project, but I hope you do in this one. Um, And it, I'm not a pure academic at all. I'm I'm a policy researcher. I'm a kind of field person, and I do think that what I try to do in this book is is offer a, an approach and a set of tools that could be practically useful. So I do I do have um, several implications, and I'll, maybe I'll do a few of the the higher level ones, and we can get into more detailed ones if you want. One of them is is a bit of a vocabulary builder. I learned the word thixotropia, which refers to substances that. Um, get fluid when they're shocked or mixed up and then harden when they're left to sit still, like honey. Um, And there's an assumption in the UN system and in international interventions, you could look at the US and Afghanistan, Iraq, that when there's a civil war and a peace process, when there's a shock or a rupture in the system, that creates a certain amount of fluidity that can be shaped and put into place. So you often see uh, civil wars being a moment where an international intervention will try to reset power dynamics to put a a new power sharing agreement in place to try and set the country on a better trajectory. That's very intuitive. I think one of maybe the more worrying findings of of my research is that often those moments of flux and movement and, and uncertainty are also the moments where the deep gravitational pulls of the system pull strongest. So if you look at, for example, the period in the immediate post-war period of South Sudan, you would imagine now's a good time to put a good, you know, ethnic power sharing arrangement in place. Underneath the surface, the the very strong um, pull of the system was actually working against that. Um, and I think so maybe one of, one of my findings is don't assume that periods of rupture and conflict are necessarily the best time to try and reset the rules of a system because they're actually having to work harder at that moment to hold it together. And maybe we should be focusing equally on periods of peace and calm where maybe trying to reset a rule will be less threatening to the system. And I could be quite um, specific here. So the, the example I gave earlier about the that the kind of protection Uh, approach uh, that that works in the Congolese police force. If you're at a moment where, for example, there's great financial uncertainty and a country's reeling in the aftermath of a major conflict, trying to reset the way in which a police officer relates to his community um, or the way she might um, interact with an, an average person at a checkpoint or something, it may be actually a difficult time to do that because that's when the need for them to feed themselves is actually highest. So this idea of rethinking the right moment to reset the rules is, is I think, a quite important policy. Now, I'm not saying that you should just abandon uh, these moments of rupture, but I'm just saying it, it's one of the findings. I think a second one really engages with a lot of the literature and what I feel is a pendulum that has swung very, very far towards local uh, approaches to peace building and state building. Some of the best authors out there um, on this, to Sarah and others have really pointed out that one of the biggest failings of the UN is to do a fairly top-down ivory tower type approach to state building. And she and, and many others have pointed out that some of the real opportunities for peace building, some of the real nuance for, for doing this work is at a very local level. And I think that's really important. And, and I hope I acknowledge that adequately in the book. For me, it's not a matter of doing top-down or bottom-up. Um, one of the difficulties I see in that highly localized peacebuilding is, yes, you may, you may end up with a very good opportunity to do something at the local level. Will it have a fractal relationship across the system? Can you cascade a, a very localized um, approach to peace building in one part of Congo or South Sudan and have it affect the broader rules in the system? My experience so far is it's quite unlikely to happen. So there needs to be an approach that's not bottom-up or top-down, but systemic, and which addresses those types of relationships that can cascade across the system, that can have, to use a complexity theory term, a bit of a snowballing effect. One of those in, in Congo, and the reason I keep coming back to it, is that police to citizen relationship. But One could imagine several others. Maybe if one of the key relationships in South Sudan is the extent to which traditional authorities need to mediate Justice and accountability. Maybe we need to think about how can you gradually um, engage with that relationship and, and maybe gradually detach it from that symbiosis with the military and and create a uh, one over time that could evolve towards a more peaceful form of justice, a more peaceful form of taxation. So I think for me, it's it's the one of the biggest policy implications is not to think of local and national as separate spheres, but to think of them as a single system. One of the best moments I had and kind of almost a revelatory moment for me was having spent a lot of time in South Sudan Um, I was with, I was with a kind of local peace builder and we were talking about an effort to deal with cattle wrestling, which is one of the most serious forms of kind of triggers for violence in South Sudan. And it's one where the UN civil affairs uh, workers have spent a lot of time designing local conflict resolution mechanisms and understanding how various ones have broken down over time and how to fix them. And the, the local peace builder, pointed out at this kind of sea of cattle and said, you know, none of this is owned by us. All of it is owned by power brokers in Juba. And so if you do a mapping, you have to think of what are the lines of influence that run from the center to the periphery and back? How are people influencing violence in in the cattle wrestling game in, in Juba? Affecting the power dynamics in Juba and the opposite. How are the power brokers in Juba using various um, kind of puppeteering mechanisms in the periphery to get what they want? Similarly, in Congo, there was a very interesting relationship between ethnic caucuses in the parliament and violent groups in the periphery. So when you had, for example, a Hutu Nande conflagration in eastern Congo... A thousand miles away in Kinshasa, there was a ripple effect happening. And I think this isolation of kind of local and national, and even in the UN, you've got civil affairs officers that do local conflict and political affairs officers that do national conflict, that kind of bifurcation, I think, needs to be re-examined and we need to think in more systemic terms. So there are plenty more um, kind of implications. But I think for me, those are two really important starting points for um, re-examining Uh, state building um, and and stabilization.
1: Thank you for outlining them and doing so in such kind of an organized manner I think that helps with understanding how this could play out um, in the cases you detail and more widely. um, I think it is I agree with your reviewer you know an academic work doesn't need to have policy implications but I am additionally glad that this one did. so coming towards sort of the end of it, I am curious about the behind the scenes of writing this, particularly as you do bring so much on the ground practical experience and that it wasn't necessarily neutral, right? As you said, you're involved on one of the sides. Um, so was there anything that you came across in the research or writing of this book that particularly surprised you? It doesn't have to be something big.
0: Yeah, I mean, so many things surprise me. The learning curve is... is so steep on some of this. And uh, one of the difficulties of trying to do this mapping is that you have so many blank spots in your map. And I think one of the the positive aspects of complexity theory is you, you can use a great deal of detailed analysis and then try to link it to patterns that over time can kind of justify your hypotheses. You don't have to know everything about a country to make educated guesses. But I think one of the most interesting and surprising, um, Revelations for me was I was in uh, Upper Nile State, kind of near the border between South Sudan and and what then became Sudan after after independence. The 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 an area that um, has a long history of interethnic divides amongst three major communities: the Shilluk, and the Nu'er and and the Dinka. And I was talking to one of the Nu'er politicians and trying to understand what the potential was for the political class to be a, really a spoiler and, and to drive further conflict going into independence and, and, and post-independence South Sudan. And she told me a story about the New Prophet. Many of these communities have uh, prophets, have a, a kind of long history of um, animist uh, religions. And the New Era Prophet in about 100 years ago had a prophecy which said that South Sudan would eventually become, the Southern people would eventually become their own nation, and they'd be led by a left-handed gap-toothed nuer. Um, and this politician said, this is a prophecy that we all hold dear, that we all follow as something that will come true. And then I sat, I listened to the rest of the story, and I thought, oh, riek Machar, the vice president, is a gap-toothed left-handed nuer who is currently second from the top. And after several more conversations I, with newer leaders, I would bring up this prophecy and they would all nod. And one of the things that I thought was maybe this deep history, deep cultural reference point is more important than we think. When you think about Machar Machar's push to be the president and the head of South Sudan, maybe he feels like that prophecy is part of his cultural legacy and something he has to live up to. And what it made me realize is we hear a lot of stories about these countries and we have these narratives that we put in place. And I was thinking about the conflict assessment that I did on South Sudan. It told a story about lack of state capacity and these kind of neglected peripheries and this resentment that built up. And and all of those things are a story that we tell ourselves about what a society is. And there are always other stories And there are often stories that don't fit neatly within our categories of what needs to be fixed or what needs to be addressed. And certainly a newer prophecy of over 100 years ago is not something that my co-author was really willing to put in a UN document going up to the top to be the basis of planning. But it's relevant. And for me, one of the most important writers on this is Jean-Paul Lederach, who talks about the importance of listening um, and of really trying to understand things by people on their own terms. And that is, I mean, it's an impossibility in a place like South Sudan. I'll never understand um, the the levels of suffering or their cultural reference points. But I think understanding that there are those layers of stories and histories that continue to affect how societies evolve is a really important starting point for all of us. And And I think for me, it gives me a great deal of humility when trying to prescribe approaches. And I think one of the things you'll find in the book is I very rarely say we should do this. It's more we should listen to that and we should spend much more time listening before we decide what we want to do.
1: That's a wonderful way to wrap up the book. I think that does the book a lot of justice. Um, And I'm glad that you kind of we got to include that piece. um, Because you do actually include uh, that prophecy in the book. And I'm glad you do and I'm glad you've brought it into the interview. Um, And so therefore for my Next question, which sounds much simpler than I know it actually is. Um, this book is obviously now out. So what are you working on now or next?
0: Mm. Well, right this minute, I'm helping set up a new office for UN University in Geneva, um, which is quite exciting. Um, I think the, the next series of projects, um, I certainly want to continue using complexity Theory. One of the areas where I think it's most useful and relevant is in understanding how climate change may be affecting security risks. Climate and and environmental science was one of the most robust and earliest um, disciplines to start using. Complexity theory. Um, And there's a reason I have the word ecosystems in the title of this book. There's a reason I have bees um, on the cover of the book. It's that I think the natural sciences and the political sciences need to be brought together more dynamically and in a way that influences our understanding of of politics and climate change. So the next series of projects I'll be doing are very much looking at, at that relationship, the climate security relationship, and also maybe the climate politics relationship. I think for me, one of the Best and most interesting books, I, I don't know if we're allowed to promote other books on this, but um, is a book called Climate Leviathan, which really looks at what the political response to the global dynamics of, of climate change are. I'd like to bring complexity theory a bit more into that discussion. I think climate change is, is the question of our time and how we're going to decide as a, as a political constellation of actors to respond to it is going to determine what our society looks like 100 years from now.
1: So you're not tackling anything small, clearly. Um, for your next projects. Um, But that sounds really interesting. So I'm sure uh, lots of listeners, myself included, will be very happy to follow along um, with your research there. But while you are off doing that and setting up the new office in Geneva, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing this episode, which is titled States of Disorder, Ecosystems of Governance, Complexity Theory Applied to UN State Building in the DRC and South Sudan, published by Oxford University Press, in 2022. Dr. Adam Day, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Miranda. It was a real pleasure.